0: You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child
1: Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts,
2: Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hey there. Hello. Uh, This week, Evan talked to John Mualem. He has written for the New York Times Magazine for a long time. He's also written for Harper's. Uh, He's also written for a bunch of other places, Slate, um, you name it. Um, But one of the things to know about this interview is that John Mualem is not the kind of person that uh, talks about himself a lot. So... I got him to do this, and uh, he has some very insightful things to say about reporting and his process, and actually it's really fascinating, things I'd never talked to him about before. Um, but he's not a guy that sort of trumpets what he does, and I personally, besides being his friend, I think that his, uh, his sort of collection of pieces is really fascinating and diverse.
1: If he's got that, like, uh, humbleness, perhaps you guys did not talk about the fact that he hit, like, the long-form triple crown last year. He's the only person I know of who he he wrote this incredible story about like the origins of the high five and it ran in ESPN. the magazine they did a version of it on radio lab and then he also did a version of it for pop-up magazine so he did like a live version on stage which has got to be like the only three-peat ever for a story i say <laughs> <laughs> uh thanks for listening
2: here with John Lowell for the new episode of the Long Form Podcast. John is in San Francisco. John, please describe the audio setup that uh, is involved in you speaking to me right now.
1: Uh, Right now I'm sitting in uh, a kitchen. I'm sitting in Doug McGray's kitchen. Uh, Doug McGray being a mutual friend of ours and the editor-in-chief of Pop-Up Magazine. And we've got a microphone propped up on a empty egg carton, on top of a wallet, on top of a small ramekin kind of holstered in a folded copy of today's New York Times. It's what all the pros use. You can actually buy that setup
2: at some of the higher-end audio shops. You don't have to make it yourself.
1: Right, right. But we didn't want to leave anything to chance, so we wanted to make sure it was done just to our, to our specs. So uh, we know each other from uh,
2: many things, uh, but perhaps the most interesting of which is that we shared an office. Uh, which I bring at the beginning because my recollection of when we shared an office was that every time I looked over in your office, you were diligently finishing another story, and every time I looked around my office, I was like reading soccer news or uh, talking on the phone with some random person that had nothing to do with reporting. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's—I mean—that's a really flattering memory of it. Uh, I don't quite know that it's true. My memory of, of our offices was that yours had like lots of framed pictures and a little like Hunter S. Thompson shrine on the fireplace mantle and uh, like a banjo and rugs. And mine had like a silver metal table and, uh, and a mostly empty bookshelf. and that was, And that was sort of it. And a chair.
2: That's because you were oriented around getting things done, and I was oriented around making my office look like a place where people got
1: things done or did interesting <laughs> uh, things. Neither of which was uh, true. I don't know. I mean, this is revisionist. I think, but uh, <laughs> but I'll accept your your telling of it. Yes, I'm the uber productive, almost ascetic, you know, monastic uh, reporter writer um, who needs nothing but a but a metal table. <laughs> <laughs> and even that 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 was your metal table as i recall it wasn't even my table yeah i don't think i ever got it back no
2: so tell let's talk about that how do you go about your sort of like process i mean you're you're a full-time freelancer you've been
1: how long have you been a full-time freelancer i mean your whole career basically yeah i mean since 2006 um i've been doing this i was in school before that i went to the the berkeley journalism school in uh for two years, prior, so it's starting in two thousand four, um, and I'd done some freelancing before that. But when I got out of school, I had um, you know I had the good fortune of doing a story for the Times Magazine while I was still in grad school. That was actually my um, my thesis or dissertation. I don't remember what they what they call it. Um, Which story is And was that? then this was a story about uh, the pre sliced apple uh, business. That was uh,
2: the story you did in grad school, the pre sliced apple story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was in early 2006, I guess. And, uh, yeah, I should explain just, this was a a company basically that was cutting up apples, putting this magical solution on them so they wouldn't turn brown and putting them in little baggies and trying to sell them in a way that was more convenient that they could, they could be eaten, uh, you know, on the go, quote unquote. Uh, so it was sort of a, a business story about this company, but then also, uh, sort of a journey into this whole uh, trend of making food easier to eat and why uh, Americans are too busy to eat a, a whole apple as opposed to sliced apples and things like that. Well, that kind of gets to what I was uh,
2: what I was trying to ask about your process in that you have certain stories. I feel like you, there's different categories of types of stories that you do, but there's one category that I think of as sort of delving into some aspect of life or society that we sort of, everyone encounters every day, but you don't really stop to think about. And then when you start burrowing into that area, you find this entire world behind it. And the sliced apples were kind of like that. Like everyone sees these sliced apples and sort of says, oh yeah, of course, sliced apple snacks, fresh apples, you can just buy those. And, but did you, do you have this like Seinfeldian like approach where you're sort of like, hmm, what about that?
1: Or like, how does that kind of story come about? Uh yeah well I guess it sort of is um, Seinfeldian or maybe like in crabbier moments like Andy Rooney esque um, <laughs> where uh, I mean with the Apple thing it's it was sort of interesting actually because I I I tend to approach I think you're right I mean I wouldn't necessarily have thought to explain it that way but I think there is a certain kind of story that I've done where there's kind of two parts there's a uh, a front story of of people doing things in real time, you know, in this case, uh, an executive trying to launch a pre-sliced apple company. And then there's sort of all this secondary material uh that kind of gives the story the the heft and the the curiosity um that will sustain it for you know five thousand words in that case. Um and in th- in that case, you know, it really just started to be this you know, I got found all these really bizarre studies about, you know, how people eat and where they're eating, you know, percentage of meals people eat in cars and and then all these other attempts by other segments of the food industry to make their, their products more grabbable or grab and go. Um, and it really became uh, a story about, you know, kind of contemporary American eating habits and and also just kind of laziness, you know I mean? I don't say it in a judgmental way. Um, but just the, you know, why exert the effort to cut up an apple for your kid and put it in a bag with some lemon juice if someone's selling that to you and you can afford it. Um, so so I tend to think of the stories in, in those two parts. And often I'll just have um, a running list of, of kind you know, two or two side by side running lists of of some of these things. You know, oh here's the company making these apples, that struck my curiosity, but maybe I can't exactly explain explain why. Um, and then I'll have another list like, you know, I've noticed a lot of, you know, convenience foods, you know, what's that all about? Um and it's a matter of just keeping kind of enough of those things running in my head or just even written down in a in a computer file until until they start to link up and uh-huh. i see um you know oh if if I tell the story about this apple company, it's a way to talk about um you know this whole other subject matter so kind of you know you've got the story and the subject uh finally syncing up i mean in that case it had actually been uh I I just started reporting about all these convenience foods, just you know gathering string and just trying to you know, reading all these weird food technology journals and all these Herculean efforts to make you know grabbable macaroni and cheese, like macaroni and cheese <laughs> that you could pick up and eat in a car, and, um, just all these bizarre things. But I didn't, have, I never really found one that was a was a real narrative or that had a, a character that that I could run with um, until I stumbled across the, the Apple guys, and there was something just so elemental about an apple. Um, which seemed to make the story even more compelling, I mean here was a food that seemed pretty convenient to begin with um, so so it's 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 not you know it's not i don't really get these aha moments where I find you know the i mean I was just listening to your podcast with David Grant and he talks about finding the you know the perfect squid hunter um, and I don't always have that you know I may find the the perfect apple guy, but I don't really know what he's perfect for, mm-hmm. uh, right away. And it, the, uh, the real kind of thrilling aha moments for me always come when I realize, um, where that guy can take you or, or how to get to something that I'm already, I'm already looking at.
2: And do you feel like you, you kind of know that person when you encounter them, like that you, you're sort of cycling through making calls and things, and then you sort of hit the person with the right level of enthusiasm?
1: Um, sometimes I mean I think it depends on what the story is I mean I think uh, I think people are always much more inherently interesting than they will come across uh, you know in one phone call <laughs> as being um, so you know you don't I don't always think that the people I'm talking to are these fantastically you know larger than life people or, or that they're you know gonna say really wonderfully introspective philosophical things um, but then you know when you spend a certain amount of time with someone you start to see those other sides um, but you know some people right off the bat are are fantastic uh, sources on the phone or fantastic characters and you know just right away that you want to go and spend time with them some people are, are too fantastic you know some people are so eager to say these quotable uh, uh, meaningful things for for you that it's they're almost uh, hard to talk to uh, <laughs> you know hard to hard to get through a, a linear conversation with um, so that's that 's its own danger i i think well there there are these
2: these moments, so as you 'll see i 'm a i 'm a close reader of the muallam uh, catalog but I feel like there's there's like a a spot in a lot of stories where you drop in maybe a one sentence or two sentence quote from someone that's sort of it almost like represents their enthusiasm for whatever it is that they 're doing and I wanted to ask you about it because it can be, I have the feeling that it can be read, it always reads funny to me, like the mattress guy. uh, You did this story about mattresses for the New York Times Magazine and mattress salesman and sort of sleep technology. And there's a mattress guy executive in there who comes in and immediately in this booming voice says, you know, how did you sleep last night? And that's like his shtick, which to me read very funny. But I kind of imagine that if the subject reads it, they they would not think you were making fun of them. They would just think, Oh yeah, that's me. That's that's my thing, but d- how do you view those?
1: Yeah, you know, I I actually think about that a lot. I mean, I I definitely don't, um, you know, I don't see myself as making fun of um, people at all. I mean, I I, I guess I've, I've I have had conversations with people like that where I, I understand that sometimes things can be read that way, um, but uh, you know, that that's sort of a peculiar example that. you pointed out because this guy was a marketer um his name was pete bills Uh, i think that was how you pronounce it He, he worked at select comfort which is the the company that um has the the bed that you can pump up you know on either side so it's the perfect firmness or softness and he really was he was their director of marketing but he was he had this fascination with sleep science and that story really you know that's the perfect example of what we were just talking about where it was a story about the mattress industry trying to Bring some science and empiricism into what they do, and convince you that they could provide a better night's sleep, so that they could compete with sleeping pill companies. But it really also became a story about you know how how people think about sleep and how we're sort of all aspiring for uh, you know the 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 beautiful eight hour you know out like a rock kind of sleep, and maybe mm-hmm. that's not actually you know the way our biology is designed. Um, so you had those two halves, and and in his you know I was originally. I think I don't remember it entirely, but I remember being originally a little put off by him, um, you know, just in terms of how useful he'd be as a as a source because he was so over the top. I mean, literally, we went out to lunch and he asked the the, the waiter, you know, how how'd you sleep last night? And uh, it was all he wanted to talk about. And I couldn't understand. You know, I sort of thought, well, some of this has to be a performance. For me but we were also with a lot of his co-workers and they sort of rolled their eyes you know as if to say old pete you know at it again you know so it was it was that was a case where i almost felt like he was that sort of person where it was almost too unreal um yeah. and that there wasn't going to be much genuinely the, genuine there excuse me um but then as i got deeper into the story and i realized well this is really he's really just an exaggerated example of everything i'm seeing in the mattress industry where they're just really clamoring for some kind of edge um, some something that's going to make them look a little more, uh, you know, scientific or a little more, uh, you know, legitimate for lack of a better word. Now that they're up against actual science, I mean, they're competing in a marketplace for sleep with doctors mm-hmm. uh, and drug companies, mm-hmm. and all they have is um, this kind of placebo effect where they can assure you that you know their their device is so comfortable <laughs> that it will lull you into a different realm. And and his. To what degree it was performative or not, his whole demeanor was designed to sell that idea um, that he was on the job and he had this, you know, laboratory approach to what he was doing. Uh, so in that case, I just sort of ran with it, um, knowing full well that, um, you know, maybe it would be funny or maybe you know, people might read it as a little belittling to him. But that was, in fact, the image that he was very carefully Trying to put out there, yeah, Um, yeah. and that it actually had a resonance with the rest of the story. It wasn't just you know because he was funny that I should include all this stuff. It was actually like a stand-in for his entire industry. Yeah, yeah. And you're,
2: I mean, you're almost like a generalist in the extreme. If if I try to look through your your pieces and find a common thread, it's more it's more actually about a style of story. Like with those two parts. Like I can see that in different stories, but do you think of yourself as writing a certain type of story, or
1: or of genre, or do they all fit together somehow? You know, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I mean, i you're, I mean, you're pretty, uh, pretty much of a generalist too, I'd say. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's as uncommon as people make it sound sometimes. Maybe I'm, I'm being naive. Um, I don't know. How can I, can I ask you? How do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I, well, I always want to be a generalist, but I feel like I I've, I feel like I got stuck writing about certain types of technology and things, and I was like working to get out of that. So for me, it was like working to get out of a beat, huh. in a way, as opposed to just saying, here is the world, and I will write about it, its most interesting aspects. Uh, to me, it was more like, how can I connect this to things I've done before, but gradually move away from the types of pieces I was doing to ones that I would rather be doing?
1: Right. Right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think I had, um, I mean just being a freelancer, I think I just found that it was, if I found something I wanted to do, I had to jump on it and try to do it. Um, and I I guess I can't explain why the subjects were so varied. I mean, I guess that's just, and we all read about lots of different things every day. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I've been working on this book for the last two years, basically all about, uh, you know, wildlife and conservation and um, kind of cultural perceptions of, of animals. Um, and that's that it's definitely felt like I've, you know, obviously I've been in that pretty deep in that in that world. And um, that originated and I, out of out of Times Magazine story, right? Or
2: at least part of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of originated out of a, a couple different stories. Um, I had done one about this uh, reintroduction project where they're trying to bring whooping cranes back to the US. And it's it's just this completely over-the-top um, enterprise where they've got these guys you know, teaching whooping cranes to fly behind these airplanes and things. Um, and that really kind of opened my eyes about just how involved humanity has to be to keep these animals around. Um, and then shortly after that, I did this uh, story for the magazine about Uh, perceptions and of of, you know quote-unquote gay animals like all these these various studies that had come out showing animals of the same sexes mating in the wild or or you know co-parenting i guess you'd say and how that all, all those those studies tended to get politicized when they'd get into the into the media that story was that story first of all had the probably
2: the cutest new york times magazine story cover that's ever been made
1: it was unbelievable. Yeah, it was a Jeff Jeff Coons uh, shot all these animal couples, which was uh, yeah, it was it was incredible, and it was right on. Uh, it was on Easter weekend too, which I didn't really put together until just like the day I saw the magazine. But it came out on Easter Sunday, and there was some bunnies on the on the cover. And wasn't the title so, just "Can Animals Be Gay?" Question mark. I think. It was yeah, like that. I don't remember. That was. I think that might have been the title online, and then they had a different cover line on the. I think it maybe just said they gay somewhere. That was one of the, or maybe I'm reversing those, but yeah, it was, uh, they they packaged it pretty well, I thought.
2: So those two stories kind of pushed you into thinking more about how we interact with wildlife, how we interact with animals, and that, that kind of prompted the book you're saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the whooping crane story got me thinking, you know, in a very sci- or literal scientific way, you I know, mean, what are we actually doing to keep endangered species surviving and it was much more elaborate and you know innovative and wacky than i would have ever suspected and then the the gay animal story uh really got me thinking of you know what there's all these things just living on earth out there uh and we we kind of all talk about them or see clips of them on youtube or whatever (laughs) but uh it's and and they tend to be really easy things to argue about or or have these kind of far-fetched ideas about and Um, So I've I've kind of combined those two things in the book. So I've I've got, I guess it's the same again, the same structure. I guess I'm just uh, repeating myself, I haven't realized until now, but the same kind of structure where you've got stories of people, conservationists on the ground, um, you know, often amateur conservationists, just kind of doing anything they can um, to help certain animals. And then uh, this kind of, uh, you know, B sections or, or more essayistic or historical parts Uh, you know i've got a whole thing about the history of the teddy bear and uh, how opinions of different animals have changed in in the u.s over time Um, so again it's sort of slamming those two things together and letting the details from the you know the first hand kind of on the ground reporting uh, just looking for for ways that that places that that reporting is going to open out into some of these larger questions or, or or have parallels with you know histories uh you know on similar or related subjects. Uh, and just trying to draw all these lines between them. And then hopefully when you get it all down, uh, make, you know, making it that it's not too overwhelming and not too all over the place. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's, I think always the, the really tough part.
2: And that all happens, uh, in this story that you have in this week's, or maybe it'll be last week's by the time we, uh, put this out, but New York times magazine, uh, about uh, a monkey so just give give a little brief of what that story is about first I'm interested in how you found that one and then uh, and, and what it's kind of like basically about
1: right so so the the story is uh, based basically around this there's a rhesus macaque which is a species of monkey that has been living on the loose in the greater Tampa Bay area since at least 2009, January 2009. And uh, so the story basically tracks the movements of this monkey. Uh, but what happened over time is as the the state wildlife agency and other law enforcement agencies tried to capture the monkey because they were afraid that it was a, a hazard to people. Uh, for it, a disease? Yes, there was a, yes, the, there was a, a groundswell of uh, populist uh, sympathy for the monkey. Uh, and it became known as the, the mystery macaque of, of Tampa Bay or the mystery monkey. And there were, you know, t-shirts and there were drinks named after it at resorts and, you know, everything, uh, Facebook page, of course. Of course. Uh, and so basically I, you know, I was just wanted to tell the story of this monkey and also the story of the people who were trying to capture it and why they were trying to capture it. Uh, and that was sort of all I knew going in. And I, I had this sense that just from reading some of the local media coverage, that it really was uh, I don't want to say a parable because that means that there's sort of an exact um, you know one-to-one correlation between these two things but there was a relationship between the way the public saw and talked about the monkey and kind of the larger political discourse right now you know they wanted the monkey to be free they didn't want this wasteful bungling you know overreaching government to to take it away and lock it up Um, and it was this real weird, hazy debate about rights going on underneath the story of this of this monkey. Um and that was kinda all I knew knew going in.
2: And did you think of it going in? Did you have that theme going in that it was about freedom, that you'd sort of sense that in it? Or was that more when you started talking to people, you realized these people have set this monkey up as basically an example of of in some way, you know, what's happening in society and the monkey should be allowed to do what it wants and big government shouldn't be Shutting down this monkey's life and et cetera. Et cetera.
1: Well, I'll say a couple of things about that. Yes, yes, I was onto that going in, and I think the only reason that I pitched the story now is because suddenly, with the the RNC happening in Tampa, uh, it seemed like some, you know this last piece, everything had just fallen together where you could do a story like that. Because, I mean, frankly, the the monkey hasn't really been, you know, the 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 heyday of of monkey mania in the Tampa Bay area is is long over. I mean, it, the monkey's still spotted, but. It's not really um, it's not as big of a of a of a cause right now as it was you know say a year ago or even or even two years ago I mean it's been going on forever um and that's you know we can get to that too, but that's sort of part of what the story became about but um so there wasn't really a a clear justification to the story right now, except that if you could tease out these political uh parallels and do it you know right before the convention, it seemed like that would be an interesting way in. Uh, so that was my thought, but I I really didn't, and I may have pitched it, you know, leaning pretty exclusively on on that. But I really didn't think that's all it would be. Um, you know, I thought, especially just coming out of the book, I, I saw all these really interesting kind of issues about uh, you know wildlife and invasive. You know, the monkey is a quote unquote invasive species, but of course Florida is filled with invasive species, and there was all these really interesting uh, kind of ecological issues and the way we categorize these animals. And in the end i just didn't really even get to a lot of that because when i got there and the things people were telling me uh the political aspect of the story just became so unavoidable i mean everywhere i went people were talking bring up you know out of the blue things complaints about the government or uh you know just i don't know why uh you know i i thought i would have to prod these things uh you know prod people for these things but um but that really it, it just became unstoppable.
2: Now, when you're when you were going down to do the reporting, did you have a sense that you had to see this monkey? You had to encounter this monkey in order for this to work, or the, that if you never saw the monkey, you could kind of do a right around of the monkey.
1: Don't really remember. I mean, I can't imagine that I would have thought I had to see. I had to see the monkey, absolutely, or there'd be no story. Because I just don't think I would do the story then. I, I'm really conservative in in terms of you know, how comfortable I need to feel before I'll go do a story. Um, I mean, I'm I'm just kind of like a wimp in that way. I, I don't, I want to make sure that there's nothing that could just go so wrong that the entire project would be derailed. Um, I mean,
2: I, so you don't like going and sort of waiting for like one thing that needs to absolutely happen to make this work. Cause I feel like I'm, I've done several stories like that. It's probably nerve wracking. Um, when I, I went to uh, to Africa to write about bushmeat hunters, uh-huh. and I had sort of one chance to go out with a bushmeat hunter, and it was sort of like, if this guy doesn't actually shoot anything, then I'm going to have the story of sort of like running around in the jungle doing nothing, which mm. is, it wasn't so much that it would completely kill the story, but it was more like, I just, there'd be no lead, like there'd be nothing it would just seem really empty if, if there was no actual like killing of an animal in the thing. So I was like desperately hoping that he eventually killed a bird. So.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm going to say something that might completely contradict what I, what I just said, but I guess you just helped me think of it in a, in a new way. I would say I'm very conservative in terms of, you know, getting the guts up to go do this stuff um, and wanting to make sure there's a good, a good chance of success. But I guess I'm a little more um, liberal in terms of, of, of telling myself what I need to do the story. Um, so for example, you know, and I think the book helped with that a lot too. I mean, you just, at least for me, I mean, doing a book, I just went down so many wrong, you know, dark alleys of reporting and took so many wrong turns of just gathered stuff that I'll just never have a hope of ever using. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's sort of some weirdly that, that also made me feel better about not getting certain things, you know, that, that you just sort of develop a faith that, if you're in the right place and you're asking the right questions, that you'll get enough. Um, and I think that's you'll know, probably someone who's been doing this a lot longer than me will will have come to that realization, you know, before. But maybe it's just a matter of of doing more reporting and then building up that that sense of security. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I did this story for the for the Times about right during the the BP oil spill in 2010, and I think that was a real lesson for me. Um, because it was about these, these volunteers who were move, digging up sea turtle nests and then moving them to Florida. So they're, they're digging them up in Alabama where there's a lot of oil in the water, and they're moving the, the turtle eggs to Florida so that when the turtle eggs hatch, the hatchlings won't be basically swimming to their deaths into a huge oil spill.
2: You know, like moving them in, in trucks, pickup trucks. Yes, they're
1: moving them in FedEx in FedEx trucks. FedEx trucks. Uh, and, I, you know, I went to Alabama, and I thought that the, the morning after I got there they'd be digging up a nest and for some reason that didn't end up happening or it happened maybe while I was flying there something had gone wrong and I and I ended up spending I think even more than a week there or maybe a week waiting for the next one because they can only dig them up at a certain point in the, the hatchling's gestation and it was all very complicated so the next one wasn't for like another week and I spent just this week in the Gulf Coast of Alabama. I mean, it was it wasn't so bad, but um, but and then in the end, when I saw them dig up a nest, it was kind of a nothing event, and I didn't even use it. Um, and instead, I just described, I kind of recreated, you know, very briefly in like maybe a paragraph or two, uh, digging up the first nest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that also kind of taught me. I mean, I don't know to be honest. I would probably do this, do it the same way again. I would probably just, you know, put put myself out and my family out to to because I'd be so anxious and feel like I needed that that scene um but I think it does just having experiences like that has has given me some amount of confidence that um you know there's so many different ways to write a story that if you have enough stuff uh, you know enough stuff can come in very different forms and there's there's really very rarely something that needs to happen um to make or break the story
2: and you in this story well I should say in in most of your pieces, I find that you're you're in there somewhere, like you not quite as a character, but there's you you definitely drop in as sort of like you know she told me or a little aside that sort of shows your presence, and that's even more true in this in this piece. I think there's a whole section really of sort of you at the at the hotel or motel, sort of thinking about what you've seen and you've been listening to talk radio, and you're sort of like trying to put together all these ideas about what does what is this monkey about, what is the chase for this monkey about and the sightings. Is that something that you intend to do usually that or is that something that happens as a natural product of your writing that you feel comfortable putting yourself in or is it or is that a device?
1: Well I mean this is a whole this particular the monkey story is a is a huge kind of leap out of left field, I think, in terms of what we're talking about. I mean I've never been in a story to this degree, I guess. Um and so maybe I'll just say something about that first. I mean, I think part of that, there's a few things at work, some of them probably not so interesting. Um, you know, one is just uh, uh, just the book. I'm definitely more in the book because I feel like uh, at some, you know, in some level you have to be when you're writing something that, that long. Uh, so I guess I'm a little more comfortable than I, than I used to be. Um, part of it was, you know, a lot of what I was reporting about had happened along time ago you know i mean relatively speaking it wasn't stuff that i was witnessing firsthand and so i felt like some of the story was going to rest on how i told the information and you know kind of how i framed it um and uh you know i also just kind of saw a cool opportunity i mean i just i was reading planet of the apes while i was there i just i did it because i thought it would just be funny to be reading planet of the apes (laughs) while i was talking to all these people about a monkey but then it turned out to just kind of be this bizarre I mean, I guess because I I just kept going to talking to people about this monkey and especially the monkeys, the wild monkeys in in Ocala. And people were telling me just the most I mean, it was—they were almost impossible to believe things they were telling me about these monkeys. But they—they they were very reputable people telling them to me, and—and and there was this. Like what kind of things? Oh, just—I mean, you know, this guy Captain Tom. I don't think this—this this wasn't in the story, but you know, this guy Captain Tom who runs tours on the river. I mean, he was telling me all these things where I—I I remember being on the boat with him, thinking it through, and—and and he's telling me about monkeys sort of attacking people and grabbing the—the the paddles away from kayakers, like jumping on kayaks and grabbing the paddles away. And he's saying these things to me, and I'm thinking he's he's clearly making this up or he's exaggerating, uh, because he's a businessman and he wants to sell you know tours on the river. And then I thought this wouldn't help him sell tours on the river. This is terrifying. <laughs> you know, he had this story about a monkey coming onto his boat for a, trying to get a loaf of bread he had left on the back of the boat, and how he approached the monkey with this big you know rod, like this big like one of these pole ro- uh, boat rods. And the monkey just stood there and huffed at him and stood its ground, you know, <laughs> and uh, and so I felt myself actually becoming a little paranoid. I mean, I think that's another it's a, it's probably a weakness. But, you know, when I when I go report these stories, I get so wrapped up in them and I, I tend to just believe what people tell me initially. You know, I, I, I'm so absorbed in what they're saying. that I just believe it. And then I have to think about it more critically later uh, that that night when you know before I went to the hotel, I'd been driving around all day and on this boat. And so I just went for a walk, even though it was, you know, so I'm walking in the rain behind this, like a home Depot or something by the hotel, just trying to move my legs a bit. And I felt myself actually looking in the trees, like to make sure there weren't monkeys around, you know? (laughs) Um, so, so the whole section where it's, where it's, you know, a lot of, I, this, I, that, and I'm reading planet of the apes. I mean, I just felt like it was the only way to kind of snap back to reality. Um, you know, after hearing all these semi, hard to believe, semi-paranoid making, uh, details that let's just, let's just take that as far as it goes, you know, let's take it to the science fiction, uh, universe. Um, so I think, you know, I, I didn't have an agenda to like write a more, you know, first person type of story or anything. Um, yeah, I don't really like reading a lot of that stuff, but, um, it just seemed like the best way to approach this, the, the, you know, the, the thing that I could, the best thing that I could add to the, to the material at that point, I guess. But
2: more, so more, generally outside of this story do you try to keep yourself out to a certain extent or do you yeah
1: i think i mean i think i do i mean it's funny that you say like you know you mentioned like people will say she told me um i mean i'll do things like that to me that's not a huge distraction it's just a way of not always saying he said she said he said she said um so i think there's maybe you know in, in the writing i like most from people i think there's you get a sense of a of a sensibility of the the teller of the story, but you don't, you aren't necessarily talked at, um, they're not saying, and then I thought about this and I thought thought about that. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's a legitimate, I have no problems with, with that kind of writing. Um, I think it's just a stylistic, you know, or an aesthetic preference. Um, so I think, you know, you're always going to come across in a magazine story just because it's you who's organizing the material and you know asking particular questions and not others or making leaps from one subject to another uh and i guess that's i hope that's mostly what the things i've done read like um yeah as opposed to i mean i think i'm also just really insecure i mean i don't i don't i think you know i don't want to be the person writing about themselves you know i just (laughs) it seems like uh I mean, I like, I like a lot of people that do that, but I just don't see myself as warranting that kind of attention or, you know, I don't know. I don't want to tax people by telling them all my feelings, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't, I wasn't thinking of it like a, like a sort of like objectivity issue or a, or whether it's like really gonzo or something. I I just get the feeling like when I read a piece of yours, it's sort of like, I'm along with this sort of like somewhat quizzical traveler into this place like there was you did the story for the times magazine about this uh comedian like the most popular right. comedian in america that like no one in you know the east coast or west coast has ever heard of because he does like puppet things in middle america and there was this section where he's talking about uh sort of like he found his favorite uh like dummy from when he's he growing up that he had seen and he's like re, re uh restoring it right right and and he says like He's talking about when he's a kid, he he says, I think, man, I I just want to go see him. And uh, the fact that I'm standing here fixing him up right now is too wacky. And then the next line is just, it was wacky, which is kind of like you just sort of like stepping back for one second and saying, like, here's you, you, the reader and myself, like alongside this kind of ridiculous guy. uh, And like, isn't this funny? I just feel like there's a way in which having yourself in there at these different points besides just making it easier than saying he said she said it kind of makes it feel like you're on the same side as the reader to me
1: yeah that's interesting i never i mean i've never thought about it to this degree but i mean that would be great if that's the effect you know i mean i think in that case if i'm remembering correctly that the you know a, a line or two after it was wacky is the fact that we're he's having this very intimate encounter with this childhood Dummy and paying very close attention to whether the the eyebrows are bushy enough and whatnot, and we're actually sitting on his mammoth luxurious tour bus in a parking lot outside this arena that he's just sold out with people outside the bus chanting his <laughs> right, name. Right. Um, so so yeah, I mean I I think to to be able to zoom in and zoom out and and tell stories in that kind of way automatically conveys some sense of the person who's making all those choices. I mean, obviously, no one reads these things as carefully as you and I do. I mean, no one, I, you know, I don't think the average Sunday Times magazine reader is going to pick up on something like that, but maybe just subliminally over time. Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think, like, Nick Palmgarten and 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 Ben McGrath, I think, are, like, two really good examples of that, too, where, uh, I mean, I, I love both those writers, and I think that they do that really well, where you can, you can tell that, they're in command of this material, and they're picking and choosing things they want to show you. Uh, but they sort of disappear as as narrators, you know, as human beings. Anyway, I mean, they're they're a voice, but they're not. You don't need to know anything about them.
2: Yeah, yeah. You don't need to know yeah their their own biography. You just need to sort of trust that they're they're showing you what is important to see in some way. Right, right, right. And w- how do you? What's how do you like to work with editors? I, I've had the privilege of working with you as your editor, although it's a little bit of an unusual situation because it's for a for a pop-up magazine, which is a live thing. So I have some experience in how you interact with editors, but do you, do you work really closely with your editor to develop a story all the way along, or do you try to just get it to a point and get it to them and get feedback? What's your kind of approach?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is... I mean to be totally honest this is the kind of question that I I get really terrified about answering in in public because I I just don't I mean I've never really felt like I knew what I was doing. I've never worked at a magazine really. I mean I I've, I've interned at one but um and I and it's only been in the last probably year or two. I mean basically when we started sharing that office was when I began to meet a lot of other magazine writers. Um so I'm always afraid that I'm going to say something about how I, how I operate. That's just completely, you know, laughable or something. But, uh, I mean, I think again, it's, I, I don't, I don't want to go to the editor unless it's absolutely necessary. And I think part of that just kind of comes from basic insecurity. Like I want them to feel like I've got it all under control and they don't need to worry about it until, uh, until they do. Um, so
2: I would say that's pretty much what they want also. Yeah.
1: I think, I think they appreciate not being, not being bothered. Um, so uh so yeah I mean I think being easy to work with is a huge asset. I mean I hope at least otherwise I've been you know sweating at night for no reason but um but yeah I mean I, I basically I'll pitch the story and and usually especially with folks at the Times I mean now I'm working with a new editor there for the first time uh but when I had a really good working relationship with the with the editors it would just be you know we'd be very both very clear from the outset you know how I was going to go forward and then they just wouldn't hear it from me until I until I turned it in. Um, so I don't. Yeah, I mean I have you know people I can ask for help that aren't my editor, um, if if I need it sometimes, and uh, it's it's not too elaborate of a process. I hope.
2: So that that actually, you saying that you've never worked at a magazine sort of reminds me that I don't. I mean I know that you went to to Berkeley uh, Journalism School, and we met sometime after that. How, what how did you decide to begin with to sort of pursue journalism at all
1: because i the, this is the origin story so so uh, i was bit by this radioactive spider but weren't you like was, uh, a butcher at um, some point y- yeah i was a i was a butcher um that was in like one bio long ago and it seems to have been it's like you can't google me without finding that um yeah so basically i was um Uh, I graduated from college in in 2000 uh, and I had no idea what I wanted to do and and my father actually died like three three weeks he he went into the hospital he he had uh, cancer and um, he went into the hospital like a couple days after I got home from college and then and then he passed away about three weeks later Um, so on top of the ordinary disorientation of being like a recent liberal arts grad with no actual career prospects, then there was this whole other level of existential, um, disorientation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I, I'd been writing, but not any journalism. Um, and, but was, was sort of always interested in journalism, but never from any real experience with it. I mean, to be honest, I didn't even really read too many magazines when I was in college. Um, I would read nonfiction books, but you know, I don't think I subscribed to a single magazine in, in college, or even probably knew what some of the bigger ones were, which is kind of humiliating, I guess. But um, but I managed to get a degree anyway, um, and uh, and so I wound up in uh, in in New York eventually uh, working for a literary magazine, just like a, a literary quarterly called the Hudson Review, where I was just you know there was a three-person staff, and we we're publishing a lot of. Poetry and kind of very highbrow, uh, inside baseball kind of criticism about Alan Tate and uh, you know Yates and things like that. Yeah, the and highest of highbrow. Yes, yes. So uh, uh, brows I had never even glimpsed before. They were so so high, um, and it was really there that I started reading a lot of magazines. you know, we had subscriptions to Harper's and the New Yorker, and they, all these things were just laying around and. Um, I remember just reading like a few pieces in Harper's and just being completely blown away and and really feeling like I wanted to do that that all along the you know I'd, I'd had a kind of urge to write about things, but I couldn't make them up in a satisfying way you know i couldn't I couldn't make up things that were fun to write about or that you know scratch whatever itch I had and that you could actually go out and talk to other human beings and write about them and then that solved that entire problem mm-hmm. um so, uh, so yeah, so I, I got interested in that and just started trying to do some freelancing and did a couple of really small things and then some slightly, you know, I did something for Salon that was kind of like the big, my, my big first, you know, thing that anyone had heard of, um, and something for the village voice. And, uh, and then I linked up with this Canadian magazine, which kind of still exists, but not in the same iteration really called Maison Neuve, which was based out of Montreal yeah and they were just letting me go write these stories you know really long stories about the most peculiar um kind of not even really worthy subjects (laughs) um uh, i'd be curious to read some of those now because i'm sure they they kind of all feel too long um but that was when i really kind of got some experience at at writing magazine pieces and it was shortly after that that my um my girlfriend now wife who was living with me in New York was coming to the Bay Area for grad school so um, so we were moving out and I kind of uh, I applied to Berkeley as a as a um, as a, you know well let's see what happens uh, I, I didn't go around looking for journalism schools but then when I got accepted and visited the place it, it seemed like too good of an opportunity to to pass up um, I mean it was really just a luxury to get to go there at that time.
2: And then how did you, you... Published that Times Magazine piece while you were there, or was it, was, you wrote it while you were there, and you published it later. Or did it actually come out while you were in journalism school?
1: No, it actually came out when I was in journalism school. I'd also done a like I did a piece for Harper's when I was there first, and then I actually did a talk of the town piece, and then I did the Times Magazine piece. So I, I basically never stopped freelancing. I mean, I had I was starting to get some real momentum freelancing when I left New York, um, and I treated Berkeley almost like a think tank or something, you know, a place where I could go and I would still be doing exactly what I was doing, but now I had these people to go to for advice and I had the comfortable feeling of being part of some you know, community of striving kids and we were all in it together. And, and I was really actively trying to get the kind of experience and connections that would give me the faith to make a go of freelancing once I left. Because I, I didn't really think I was gonna be cut out for anything else. I was really terrible at, at newspaper writing and reporting Um, You know, I tried to get you have to do an internship in between your two years at Berkeley. And I I just kept trying to get these newspaper internships and I just couldn't get a single one. And people, you know, these recruiters would come and, I, you know, my tie would be crooked or, you know, I I would just like I had my resume was formatted incorrectly. And just really it was really embarrassing, you know, and uh, and and just I couldn't get one of these jobs. I couldn't get one of these internships for the summer. You know, many of them were unpaid. Um, that's nuts. And then, so so I just felt like, well, it's, it's going to be me on my own or nothing, you know? Yeah, well,
2: so much magazine freelancing, I feel like it's driven by fear. Like, Right. It's, it's just, <laughs> there's fear about, over your income. There's fear over the fact that you don't have any other skills. And then there's a fear at a certain age, you're sort of like, well, now I can't keep saying I'll go to law school if this doesn't work out. Like, it's pretty much all you got. Right. I think
1: I'm just getting to that age now, actually, where... Um, yeah, I'm sort of realizing that it's this is going to be it for a while. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. It is. I mean, so much of the, both the lifestyle and then the ability to be the least bit successful at this I think is uh, just as much emotional and constitutional, you know, about your own constitution as, as it is about any real skill set. Because um, you just have to be able to keep this whole other layer of anxiety and, and issues that have nothing to do with the actual work. You have to be able to keep it relatively calm enough to to be able to sit down and get anything done.
2: And how do you how do you look at sort of other writers or read other magazines? Because I always thought one of the hardest things was even if you're not a sort of really competitive person or a person who gets jealous of other people, if you are writing feature stories for magazines, every week and every month there's, you know, fifty examples of people doing what you're doing in a very public way yeah better that, yeah <laughs> that you can read and say oh shit in fact the only thing that i remember about that i knew about you before i met you was that our mutual friend jen Kahn said uh oh you got to meet this guy john he's great and he's doing all these stories like he's still in journalism school and he's you should read the story in harper's and i read them and i can i can distinctly remember a thing like who is this who is this guy why is it, this isn't fair <laughs> I, I could have this is a topic I could have written on, but I can't write like that
1: <laughs> yeah that I mean that's just the way we live, isn't it I mean that happens to me three to four times a week at least, and with Twitter, it's so much worse, you know because it's not just I mean the stuff is just constantly flashing at you um yeah, yeah even the old stuff right right all times are just crunched it's you know it's like now you're you're competing against like you know tom wolf in the 70s um so yeah i don't know you're asking me how to deal with that i have no idea how do you manage that yeah (laughs) i have no idea how do you manage that uh well i i i by
2: getting to know people that was the main way because i think if for me if i was sitting alone in my apartment my tiny apartment that i could barely afford and staring at the computer and then all these magazines are coming in the mail and i'm thinking like who the fuck are these people And there's just more of them all the time. And, God, they seem annoying. And then if I met them, I would think, oh, this person's amazing. And I think that was what really changed it for me. I got started getting to know magazine writers. And the ones that you're annoyed by their success, you realize, like, first of all, they're also very insecure. And second of all, they're really nice people who are just trying as hard as you are. So that right. was, that's been... Well, my,
1: I'm going I'm to back up. I wouldn't say... You You seem a little more vindictive and uh, I, I'm not annoyed by these things. I've just completely... I just want to kind of scrunch up into a ball and and hide. Um, so you seem to have a lot more aggression to work through about, <laughs> the, about this subject. But... Uh, I have both. I have both. Yeah. I it's mean, it's interesting, interesting what you said, though, because I've always felt like, you know, every, whenever you talk to people about this, they always want to know what, you know, is it, what's it like living on the West Coast as opposed to in New York and doing this work? And I've always clung to the idea, perhaps fraudulently, that there's a benefit to living away from the center of publishing because you're not constantly running into these people. Um, you know, you, you don't have to constantly measure yourself against, um, you know, other people. And I think that there's some truth to that, but I also think that what you're saying is, is absolutely right. Um, that it does help to meet people, and like I said, it's only been in the last few years that I really feel like I've, I've gotten to know, especially people sort of of our generation. Um, you know, I'm just beginning to meet a lot of those people and get to know them, <clears throat> and then and then it starts to feel more collegial. I mean, it, it does feel like you you start rooting for particular people um, as opposed to you know having to avert your eyes. You know, after you read the first graph because you're just too scared and ashamed. Um, so I think I think both things are both both sides of it are are true, that there's there's a benefit to keeping everything as a complete abstraction and just trying to do your work as best as you as you can, which is for the most part what I've done. Um but I could imagine that that being really plugged into those worlds is also also has its comfort.
2: Yeah, I think there's just so many ways for it to make you feel terrible. Like there's there's just so much rejection. There's like life? Direction. Are you talking about life? Just there's so many well, ways like, for maybe life I'm to make talking about <laughs> <Yeah>. life. <laughs> let's talk about rejection in life <laughs> no i just i mean in the, the process of freelancing is just it's it's involves so much rejection that there's lots of ways to go in terms of rolling up into a ball right um, right any kind of human connection you can have with other people who are doing it
1: is uh always strikes me as being valuable and i mean i do oh here's a dog we've got a dog visitor hey ginger um I mean, I do think, I hope at least that some of this is a function of age, too. I mean, I think with, with every career, the more you're going to do it, the, the more comfortable, hopefully, you'll feel doing it. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't mind. I, I think that's also part of what makes it exciting is that I still feel like every time that I go to do a story, um, you know, I approach it as if I just really don't know much about what I'm doing, <laughs> um, you know, and that mm-hmm. I, I have to figure it out. Uh, and that's what makes it really thrilling I mean I never presume to to think that the way that I do reporting and writing is the best way and in fact I do the opposite I I presume that I'm I'm doing it in some horribly inefficient way and if only I could unlock the secret of Evan Ratliff and um, and then I would you know I'd get it all done much faster and it wouldn't be so terrible
2: um i always assumed that the people that went to journalism school knew a bunch of stuff that i didn't know no
1: they don't really they don't really teach you that i mean i think that the real benefit of journalism school is just getting to talk to more writers and more established writers and then you collect these um these monologues of of these people that you meet who are who are talking to you you know talking you through their experiences how they did a particular story and you just collect all these things and then you can draw on them when you need to oh this is this is kind of i'm facing a situation that's kind of like this situation that that so and so faced, or at least it, it gives you a, a sense that um, problems are inevitable, um, and you can you can work around them. And I'm I'm starting to see. I I'm, I'm starting to see in some reporting. I think the book had a lot to do with it of just having to do so much reporting, you know, just day after day after day. Um, I'm starting to see some excitement in in that too, and not just worry. You know, some excitement in in that. If if I just kind of assume it's going to work out one way or another it can be a real fun adventure to find the path from here to there you know hopefully just as you as you do more that that excitement starts to outweigh the the horror um, of, of messing up.
2: I'm Evan Reiliff. This has been the Longform Podcasts. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from longform.org. You can find them at www.longform.org. And I'm with The Adivist. You can find us at atavis.com. Our editor is Lauren Kirshner. And a uh, special thanks to Doug McGray for setting up the audio on the far end of this interview. And thanks to John Mualim for participating.
1: To do your dirty work, oh yeah. I don't want to do your dirty work, no more. I'm a fool to do your dirty work, oh yeah.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running.